Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez is a 20-year Navy veteran and a supporter of Ukraine military aid. He also represents a Texas district that makes up more than 40% of the U.S.-Mexico border. What about those that are trying to do it the legal way? What about work visas? What about vetting people? Those are the time. It was, it, it was kind of doomed from the beginning in the mentality in which they were going. The world is currently faced with national security threats on numerous fronts, and Congress is trying to figure out just how to respond. But will it? Produced by Defense News and Military Times, this is the Early Bird Brief. Each morning, we bring you the defense and national security news of the day. I'm your host, Simone Perez. Today is Wednesday, February 8th, 2024. So good afternoon, early birds. I'm here with Representative Tony Gonzalez, a Republican from Texas's 23rd Congressional District. Congressman Gonzalez, thank you for coming on for your early bird debut. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for having me. So first family separation pay, you are a big fan. It's a provision in the fiscal year 2024 defense policy bill that raised separation pay first time in two decades from $250 to $400. The Pentagon, though, hasn't implemented those increases. They say they are studying the pay amounts. Is that a timeline that you are all right with, or do you see it as a little bit of a slow walk toward the finish line, if you will? Yeah, the timeline should be now. Uh, Having spent 20 years in the military, having been deployed for years uh, of that 20 years, Family separation allowance is so critical to our, to our military families. The fact that it hasn't been raised in decades is almost criminal. And the fact that we got it to 400, I mean, is, is incremental. There absolutely has to be more that needs to happen. This whole, they're not going to implement it immediately. I've already had conversations with several folks at the Pentagon. We'll continue to have these conversations, and I will push for them to get it done immediately. There's no reason why families should be put last in the military equation. I get it, we need bombs, we need BBs, we need housing, we need all these other things, don't get me wrong, those are all important things, but our family unit needs to be the most important aspect of the military service, and raising that family separation allowance from 250 to 400 needs to happen immediately. Do you see it as a way to help recruitment and retention then too? I don't know if that's necessarily going to go. Oh, 400 bucks is going to be the reason why I uh, raise my right hand, but it's certainly going to help the family. And so to the point of retention, absolutely. I think anything we can do to make your family more successful, and part of that is pay, a large part of that is pay. If you're worried about paying your bills at home, guess what you're not worried about? Fighting the enemy, training, doing all the things that you were, you were basically brought in the service to do. So I think it's absolutely important to the fighting force that we raise this, this pay. And I'm not going to, this, this is how it's going to work. I've asked nicely to go, hey, look, I get it. You're studying it. You're thinking about it. I'd highly recommend that you implement this. And then the next step is when they come before, I sit on the House Appropriations Committee. So guess where they're all getting their money from? The Appropriations Committee. The next step is when they come before the House Appropriations Committee and testify, if they don't do that, then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna fire both barrels at them. The Israel-Hamas war. So you're a member of the Four Country Caucus. That's a group of bipartisan vets for listeners and viewers who don't know. Shortly after the October 7th attack, your group released a statement of support for Israel. Since then, though, the Israel military has conducted their operation in Gaza. 27,000 Palestinians have died. Human rights groups are describing the Israeli airstrikes as indiscriminate. You served overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. You know the struggle of balancing, you know, rooting out enemies 
versus protecting civilian life. Do you have concerns about their offensive that's gone too far and hurt too many civilians? I love serving on the Four Country Caucus. I'm one of the co-chairs. And what's great about the Four Country Caucus, it's a mix of Democrats and Republicans. All of us have served in uh, different capacities, different services, and we all bring that national security focus to the table. And uh, we were one of the first groups to come out and be very vocal on this. I think back to my time in the military, you know, having spent five years in Iraq and Afghanistan, war sucks. War is hell. Uh, innocent people die in war. There are no winners in war. They're only losers. And so what happened on October 7th to, uh, to innocent Israeli uh, people is an atrocity. And Hamas is responsible for that. And I've been of the, I've been of the mindset, you don't reward terrorists. You kill terrorists. Right. But at the same time, you know, you, you can't you can't carpet bomb an entire population and expect good things to happen because what we saw it in Afghanistan. You know, you may kill one person, but that family is now upset. And I mean, you've inadvertently created three or four other people that are now against you. So I think it's very important that Israel or any any army, any uh, operation focus on military targets. Now, that's tough to do in a very populated area, right? We saw that in Iraq uh, in particular. You know, when you're fighting street by street, it's very difficult. There has to be an exit strategy. We can't have these endless wars, whether it's Israel and Hamas or otherwise. I think part of that exit strategy, the United States needs to play a role in that. That role is this. We need to tackle the money. Where is Hamas getting its funding? Where is this getting its, its weapons? And we need to stranglehold that. I think that will help speed up the end of this process, if you will. But yes, I am. I don't want to see anyone get, I mean, you, you're seeing babies coming out of buildings, whether they're, who cares what, what race or ethnicity they are. Anytime you see innocent people die, it, it's heartbreaking and it needs to stop. So I'd much rather, and I've been pushing for the Israeli operation to be focused on the military. I believe they're doing that, but it's one of these things where, you know, war is hell. Also something a bit personal to you, the Navy last month announced that folks without a high school diploma or GED could enlist. Uh, they just have to score a 50 on the Armed Forces Qualification Test. You enlisted under a a similar program in the 90s. Before it was Representative Tony Gonzalez, what about enlistee Tony Gonzalez? What drew you in and how did that program help you get in? I love that the Navy's bringing this program back because it, it highlights what it, what, it's, what it is to be an American. Essentially, if you're given an opportunity, it's all about how you take advantage of that opportunity. So I think back to my story. I've lived on my own since I was 15 years old. I worked two and three jobs to make my way through high school. I was a half credit away from graduating, a half credit. AP classes, never in any trouble. I just was dealt a tough hand. And my grandfather, who was essentially my father, passes away. So I'm working two or three jobs, trying to kind of just keep my head above water. And then I, I drop out of high school, kind of going nowhere. I go to the Army first. Actually, my father was in the Army. My grandfather was in the Army. I go to the Army, and the Army said they couldn't take me unless I got a GED. And I go, here's the deal, man. If I wanted to get a GED, I'd have done that three years ago. I've been fighting for this high school diploma. So my cousin was in the Navy, and he goes, Tony, you should, you should go to the Navy recruiter. I go, why would I do that? One, I don't know how to swim. Two, I don't like sailors, and I don't like the water, right? I don't like ships. He goes, you fool, just go. The Navy does so many other different things. Just go to the Navy recruiter. And so I go to the Navy recruiter in San Antonio, across from Ingram Park Mall. And the Navy recruiter's like, boy, do we got a deal for you. He goes, you scored great on your ASVAB. He goes, we could make you a cryptologist. 
I go, I don't even know what that is. And he goes, neither do I. And he pulls out this card and he reads what a cryptologist is. National security clearance, uh, working with NSA, uh, computers, doing all these different things. And that's how I, I, I joined. I learned to swim uh, two weeks later when they, you know, when they pushed me in the deep end of the pool at Great Lakes. I get my high school diploma when I was stationed in Pensacola, Florida. So I go on, I get my associate's degree, my bachelor's, my master's, and I was halfway through my PhD before getting elected into Congress. I go from an E1 to an E9 to a master chief. So clearly the program works and there needs to be more programs like that where, you, where you're based on merit, how hard you're willing to work. When, when I was a chief, I never asked, hey, what, what's your GPA? You know, where do you go to school? All you cared about, are you willing to work hard, you know, uh, help the mission and get things accomplished? So I think it's a great idea that the, that the, milit that the Navy in particular views that and I think all services should follow suit. Um, and now to the somewhat pretty much now deceased supplemental Two months of negotiations, Ukraine aid, Israeli aid, money towards the Indo-Pacific, and border funding. Former President Donald Trump whipped pretty hard against the bill, kind of said, blame me if it doesn't pass because I will have had that sway over the Republicans in Congress. Um, to be fair, also a number of progressives came out for, with their own reasons against it. Did lawmakers try and do too much in one bill? And what do you see as the future of Ukraine aid? Yes. So what happens in Washington is you pick something that makes sense, something that everyone agrees on. Everyone agrees that border security is important. Everyone agrees that we need to support our allies when they're on the battlefield, right? You can debate over how much or, you know, the, the semantics of it, but everyone agrees with that. And then what ends up happening is you take that, you hold it hostage, you put as much other stuff in there as you possibly can, and you try to get it over the finish line. It's the play that they run over and over again. And too many times, that's what gets it sunk. So I've been speaking with the senators that, that built this out for months now. Uh, I think there's a lot of positive things in that bill, but there are also a lot of things that, that made no sense to me. One, you should never talk about illegal immigration and encourage it. The number should always be zero. It should not be any other number but zero, right? At the same time, there, is, there was no talk of legal immigration in this, in this bill. What about those that are trying to do it the legal way? What about work visas? What about vetting people? Those are the type of, it was, it, it was kind of doomed from the beginning in the mentality in which they were going. There were some positive things in there, raising credible fear standard, that would absolutely work. Uh, increasing the number of ICE ERO flights, deporting people that do not qualify for asylum, that is how you solve this problem. Because guess what? That's how Donald Trump solved the problem. That's how President Obama solved the problem. Bush, Clinton, everybody. And it's also how President Biden has solved the problem. Those Haitians under the bridge in Del Rio two years ago, the reason that went away is because President Biden started deporting people, Haitians, back to Haiti. But the president can do that today. I'm looking at where do we go from here? We go from here, the next steps is, I think the bill should be very, very narrow in scope. What are some meaningful border security measure things that can, one, make an impact, but also get passed in this current political environment? It's pretty rough out there, right? And, and the house is a rough and rowdy place. So I think you have, to, you have to look, not what you want, but what can you get over the finish line that'll ultimately keep Americans safe, right? Think about 9-11, right before 9-11, the USS Cole was bombed. The embassies in Africa were bombed. There was a lot of different things happening. Are you concerned at all by how 
quickly lawmakers turned on the bill after President Trump came out against that. Are you concerned at all that 2024 elections and politics, I mean, look where we are, we're on the Hill. Are you concerned that it's going to be even more difficult this year to drag anything over the finish line security related? It's an election year. And many people up here view the world through a political lens. It's how they, it's how they make their calculations. That's not me. I view the world through uh, you know, serving and what's in the best interest of our country. Because once again, when a terrorist act happens, uh, they're not trying to kill Democrats or Republicans. They don't care who you pray to or who you go to bed with. All they're doing is trying to kill Americans. I've seen that. I've spent my entire adult life fending off people that wanted to do that. So this is, I think, an opportunity where we can come together. How do we stop fighting one another because of our politics? And how do you bridge that and go, wait a second here. The true enemy is the cartels that are the ones you know, controlling the levers on this. The true enemy is some of our adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, that are every day trying to kill our soldiers abroad. We need to get back to some of that. You said, you know, more refined border bill. How do you see Ukraine and Israeli aid going? Do you see it as a, we're going to go do border security in this corner, and then now, you know, we're going to do Ukraine and Israel aid together because, you know, the right doesn't want as much Ukraine aid, the left doesn't want as much Israeli aid. Is that kind of how you foresee see, uh, in the future Ukraine aid going and Israel aid? I think you look at it through what can get over the finish line. And whatever that is, that's where you start, right? Not what you, once again, not what you want. Does Ukraine, does Ukraine need support? Absolutely. Blank checks aren't going to solve the problem because they've never solved the problem. But doing nothing is also not going to solve the problem. We can't leave our allies on the battlefield. Russia invaded Ukraine, a, you know, the a sovereign nation. And it's important for us to stand with the Ukrainian people. I visited Ukraine a couple months before the Russian uh, occupation. And I could tell right then, those people are tough, man. They're going, I mean, you don't want to mess with these people. I mean, I, I remember talking to one of the veterans from the 2014 Russian war. He's a heavier set guy. He's wearing a Nirvana shirt. And he goes, here's the deal. He had a pizza shop. He goes, Tony, all I want to do is sell pizza and beer. But if the Russians come looking for a fight, they're going to get a bloody nose. <laughs> I'm like, man, you don't want to mess with these people. So we, those, we can't leave them on the battlefield to fend for themselves. We have to support them. But blank checks aren't the answer. you got to be able to go, this, these are the tools you need to be successful. And there has to be an exit strategy as well. These endless wars, I mean, th- th- that's, that's, un- that's, that's, that's not right. Israel, we have to stand with our allies. They're over here fighting against Hamas and trying to eradicate a, a terrorist organization. we got to stand with our allies. And border security makes a lot of sense. You're hearing more and more legislators talking about it's there. All you got to do is package in a manner that it, it makes sense. 370 pages with some of these other things, that, that clearly wasn't the answer. Who knew Ukraine had the toughest pizza makers in the world, (laughs) really? Going to the border security, though, you represent the most miles of the U.S.-Mexico border as if that has not come up at all during your uh, many media interviews. That includes Eagle Pass, Texas, currently, which is at the center of a standoff between the federal government and the Texas National Guard. More than two dozen other state governors signal their support for Texas Governor Greg Abbott. The guardsmen are in uniform but operating as state employees of the state of Texas. But are you concerned about the images of men and women in military uniforms, keeping federal border patrol agents from the border and kind of having that standoff at all? 
So my district stretches from San Antonio to El Paso. It takes me 10 hours to get from one end to the other. I have 823 miles of the southern border, 42% of the overall southern border, two-thirds of the Texas-Mexico border. And I remind people that try to parachute in and, and, and spew their talking points, you're never going to outborder me, right? I literally am on the border every single day. I understand it. I'm hearing from folks. And this is what I see is Shelby Park in Eagle Pass is about a mile or so. And everybody's talking about Shelby Park. They're talking about the razor wire. They're talking about the state versus the federal government. And all the cameras and all the intention are there. The other 2,000 miles of the border, to the left and to the right, nobody's talking about it. So the facts are on the ground, while it looks like there's this, you know, oh, the states versus the federal government, that's all the shiny object, right? What I don't want to see is that is a powder keg waiting to be lit. And the politics in today's environment, it's very nasty, right? Everyone's demonizing one another, and it's not healthy for our country at all. So I view, I view it through the lens of this. So first off, the people on the ground should never be put in a position where you're working for the, the National Guard, that you're all of a sudden going against the Border Patrol, who's a federal agency, and vice versa. Because that's not how it works. You know, I think back to my time in the military, the boots on the ground, you're working together. You just are. You know those people. You, you relate with them. You, you maybe, maybe have a different mission, but it's really the same people, if you will. So this is where I think it's dangerous where politicians throw fuel on the fire because it's good politics, right? You're like, oh, that damn Joe Biden, you know, we're going to get him. We're going to do, oh, that damn, you know, uh, uh, governor of Texas, we're going to get him. And, and, and that, it's lucrative politically. I'm on the mindset that doesn't help us solve a problem. I'm a cryptologist. I see a problem and I try to solve it, right? So I'm trying to solve the problem. And part of trying to solve the problem is what is the root of the problem? The administration did this early on and then they went away from it. The root of the problem, it gets complicated, but the root of the problem is this, the cartels control everything. So why aren't we going after the cartels? And I'm not saying send in SEAL Team 6 and, you know, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you want to hurt an organization, you go for their money. Let's, let's seize their money. Let's seize their assets. Let's hold them accountable. The razor wire, if somebody has crawled on their belly for 2,000 miles, have been through hell, no amount of razor wire is going to turn them around that last one mile, right? So... It, it, a lot of that, a lot of things that are happening on the ground level are just the shiny object. Is the the political stuff? I'm I'm trying to. How do you de-escalate? How do you de-escalate the situation and get to a real solution? Pulling away from the shiny object, you yeah. know, and going to the other two thousand miles of border. Yeah. Do you believe that there is a role for the military to play in this migrant crisis? 100%. What would that kind of look like for a whole of border effort rather than just this one contested mile in Eagle Pass? Intel is a prime example. You know, we have to know what, what is happening. What I think about the most is I think about, and I have this conversation with a lot of these uh, agencies and actors, is to go, look, the migrant situation that's coming, the sheer numbers, that's terrible. The amount of drugs and, and fentanyl that's coming over is terrible. But what I worry about the most, what keeps me up at night, is a terrorist attack. I'm talking about somebody that wants to come in, utilize this open border in order to kill Americans. And that's real. I mean, we're over here feeding the Houthis tomahawks every day, right? At some point, they're going to get mad, right? They already are. And they're going to go, you know what? Instead of sending drone attacks in Jordan, how about we send drone attacks in the United States? This is real, 
So this is the part where I think we have to we have to know who's coming into our country. And I think the military can do that. Once again, armed guards, uh, that's that's not the answer. It's it's tearing things out. And but but the secret sauce is this. Border Patrol has to get back to doing its function. They are the federal instrument that is in charge of this. And right now they're not. They've been pulled out of that and they're essentially in processing. Let's pull them out of the processing and get them back out in the field. And then let's layer in the tools they need to be successful. Intel, technology, uh, these are all things that can, that can help them do their job. On the subject of Red Sea issues, and all, but also the ground forces in Iraq, Syria, and Jordan, some of your colleagues on the farther ideological ends of the ideological spectrum sure. say the presidential war powers should be reeled in in initial strikes, they were pretty adamant that, you know, fearing a greater war in the Middle East, they want to have Congress reassert itself into the war powers discussion. Sure. Where do, how, do, how do you see that as a veteran and as a lawmaker? I think our founding fathers were brilliant. They built three branches of government that made all three branches fight each other over power and influence. And so as, as part of the legislative branch, you know, I'm always fighting against the executive branch to pull in more power and influence. And the legislative branch should absolutely, according to the Constitution, have a say in the matter. And, for, and it's not just the Biden administration. For a long time, the executive branch has always said, yes, however, comma, I'm going to use my authorities to do, whether it's you know, initial responses or whether it's executive orders or whatever it is. So there's always this back and forth. So I've been of the mindset Congress needs to play a greater role in this. We can't just be throwing rocks at the administration. I get it. It's fun. It's easy, right? I can't miss. I, you know, I'm, I'm Mexican-American. It's like a piñata without a rope. You just you can't miss. You're just always beating up the administration for everything that they're doing. But guess what? Does that make our troops any more safe? Does that make our enemies any less likely to attack us? There has to be this, wait a second, let's set politics aside and how do we come together and go, how do we keep Americans safe abroad and how do we keep Americans safe at home? And part of that is Congress being having a seat at the table in making those dis, the, the decisions, discussions, but ultimately this. He, he can do that all day long, but once again, they're going to have to come before the House Appropriations Committee and beg for money, just like they do every year, right? So there's, there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. You know, you can go around me, no big deal. But when next year, when you come asking for money and I all of a sudden take a zero out of one of your accounts, I guarantee you, you're going to be thinking twice about it. The authorization for the use of military force for the war on terror is justified for a lot of these military actions across, you know, North Africa and the Middle East. Do you think that needs retooling? Or do you think, like, how, how do you view that? Yeah, of course, these AUMF is, has, has changed. The world has changed. But uh, I've been of the mindset of, of repeal and replace, right? Let's update it. Let's figure out what the new topic is. There are some people that just want to repeal it. There are some people that just want it to stay in place. I'm of the mindset we need to repeal and replace it with something that is more modernized for the current environment that we're fighting in. One final question. What are you reading or listening to? And if your answer isn't the early bird brief, we are deleting this recording. <laughs> you know what's amazing, man? Well, you know what's amazing? Um, I'm all over the place. I've probably got a dozen books that I'm, uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm chopping away at. But what's amazing is, having spent my 20 years in the military, early bird was a daily occurrence. Reading the early bird was a daily occurrence, man. It was, it was, and you know what? I'm thinking back to 
my first duty station where we would build out the kind of op, the ops brief. And the early bird was one of the things in there, man. So, um, you know, you had classified material, but you had unclassified. It's all of it. So I'm, I'm actually really, I do, a lot of, I do a lot of interviews, do a lot of different media, but this one's really cool. This was a lot of fun to do. This week has been really fun. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I don't read as much early bird as I should. That's but all right. That's <laughs> as, as any good politician it's it's Alyssa's fault. It's not my fault. It's Alyssa's fault. Wonderful. Well, Congressman Gonzalez, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, great. Thanks. And that's it for us this morning. To get more top stories and breaking news, go to defensenews.com slash EBB to subscribe to the Early Bird Brief newsletter. Please give us a like, rating, and a comment wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to follow us on social media at Defense underscore News and at Military Times. The Early Bird Brief is hosted and produced by me, Zimone Z. Perez. Our editor-in-chief is Mike Bruce. Have a great day.